So now we're, we're sailing through the symposium, and we've uh, arrived at uh, the deep faking of news, or, yeah, I guess that works. Fake, deep, no, no, deep faking of news. Um, Blaze is uh, now our all-time symposium record-breaking speaker. This is, this is his third symposium talk, right? So you've outpaced Mott Green and a couple other people. Um, but it's really great. I mean, we've had this, this terrific uh, relationship. Uh, we're very happy uh, that Blaze continues to come year after year. And we're looking forward to more uh, adventures together as well. So um, I think, uh, obviously, uh, he, he's, he's now with Google and is doing work uh, with a large AI division there. Um, in past talks, he's, he's, uh, he's worked with us on uh, photography, uh, sort of amazing project that was going on there, and the uh, representations, and still very memorable. Um, and then also, uh, I mean, I, I will never forget the, uh, the, the entry to one of his talks when he said, uh, whose jobs are going away? All of ours. And that was, that was a very dramatic beginning. And then he fleshed it out a little bit, and a couple people felt hopeful at the end, but I don't know. Um, but anyway, we're, we're always happy, and, and, and this is a very timely, obvious, uh, timely uh, topic to be working on. So we're looking forward to you sharing uh, your knowledge on deep faking the news. Thank you, Blaze. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, it's, it's always lovely to come to Smoke Farm, and, uh, it's, uh, and it's a great honor to, to now be the record-breaking the record uh, record farm smoker, smoke farmer. Um, so uh, I, I've been, I've been at, at Google for, uh, for four and a half years or so now, and um, there, there are a couple of intersections between the talk that I'm going to give now and, and, and the ones that I've given here before. But, um, but there are some new elements, uh, more than a few new elements as well. Um, I, I'd like to begin by, by saying that I am an AI optimist. Uh, if, I, if I weren't one, I wouldn't be working on, on this stuff. Um, and uh, at the same time, I'm also alarmed. Uh, and the things that I'm alarmed about uh, might not be uh, the same things that you're alarmed about uh, with, with respect to, to AI. Um, I, I think that AI is a fundamental step in our development. Uh, and when I say that I'm an AI optimist, what I mean is that I believe in progress, uh, which I guess is an unfashionable idea, maybe nowadays. Um, you know, when I, when I look at the very large scale picture of how things have gone since the Big Bang, uh, I, I see um, the development of artificial intelligence as, as one of those um, milestones, one of, those, one of those really large-scale revolutions in big history, which might, might look like just extraordinary hubris or, or, or insane, uh, or, or maybe not, and, and I, I guess this is debatable, but, um, but there, there are a few things on, on, a few revolutions on here that are, that are missing, uh, like um, fossil fuels, which have been a mixed blessing for sure, uh, uh, or uh, the development of sex, which has also been a mixed blessing for sure, but, but which was uh, fundamental for, for the speed up in, in, our, in our evolution in a variety of ways. Um, but I, I see it as, 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 being, uh, as being one of these, one of these very large-scale changes that will enable a great deal uh, to come. And, and, I, and I see the, the arrow of, of time here as, as being in some way that's very hard to define positive. Uh, I do see progress. 
Uh, at the same time, with every one of those things, there are, uh, I mean, as this may be hinted at by things like the oxygen catastrophe, uh, you know, revolutions are, are crises too, in certain ways, and carry with them risks of all sorts. Uh, and transformations that can be, that can be very dramatic, and in which uh, uh, winners and losers can be created. And I want to talk about some of the AI risks that, uh, that I see, and some of the ones that we see in the, uh, in the news. Uh, and uh, I'll begin with the one that I think has been uh, in the news and, and, uh, and, and talked about maybe too much, which is existential threat. And it's not hard to understand why we would think that AI poses an existential threat, because when we look at uh, the genocide that we've likely propagated on, on, uh, on the other large uh, people, uh, whether that's uh, um, the Neanderthals uh, or, uh, or other, uh, other large um, close cousins uh, of ours, uh, or, uh, or, or of, uh, of native peoples uh, wherever, wherever we've gone and, and colonized. I mean, the definition of we becomes very tricky. Uh, you know, what, what it comes down to is that all of us, we're, you know, the most expansive possible sense as, as, as primates, are uh, a, a warlike and, and nasty sort of people. And uh, we, we like to dominate and kill, and we do that wherever we go. Uh, you know, it's, it's probably no uh, coincidence that the megafauna disappeared from all of the places on Earth where uh, humans spread to in suspiciously short order. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, when we think about that and, and, we, and we then uh, pivot to, we're now making machines that have intelligence, which we see as our, as our great advantage, uh, we immediately become paranoid and think, well, I guess we're all next, and, and, and now the machines are going to come and replace us. Um, I, I think in a sense that we're, we're being both anthropocentric and anthropomorphic when we do that, and failing to understand that, that this, uh, this dominance and these ideas about, uh, you know, about destroying the other stuff have very little to do with our intelligence and a great deal to do with our own very particular Darwinian inheritance. Uh, so I, I, I'm actually not, this is not one of the things that, 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 uh, that keeps me up at night, um, to, be, to be quite honest. Um, autonomous weapons do sometimes keep me up at night. Um, this is from a, the, the Black Mirror episode, Metalhead. Black Mirror is a wonderful, wonderful resource for, uh, for speculative dystopias of all kinds. Uh, and Charlie Brooker and collaborators are, are really very on point, very creative and smart in thinking, thinking a lot of these things through. And this was an especially terrifying episode of what it would look like uh, to have an out-of-control autonomous weapon. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and these already exist. Uh, this, is, this is the BAA, BAE system's CORAX, uh, which can do autonomous uh, targeting and killing. And, um, and that's not even new. <laughs> that one's already been declassified. So, uh, you know, we, we do worry about these things. And, and actually, I, I was a co-signatory along with many, many other uh, people working in, in the field in AI in this uh, open letter from uh, back in 2015 um, uh, against, uh, uh, so in the end, you know, thousands of us uh, signed this thing against autonomous weapon systems. Of course, it doesn't really matter how many co-signatories you have on these things because there will always be people willing to pay for them. So that's a problem. There I am in the bottom left next to Bill Hibbard. Um, there's, there's a lot of talk also about robotic moral dilemmas. Uh, so, you know, this is, this is a Philip of Foot sort of stuff. If you, uh, you know, if you, if you can accelerate and run over two people, but there are three people in the back seat, and one of them is a baby, but then there's a grandmother, and you could swerve, and, you know, and, and this is bullshit. I mean, when, when has that ever happened? Uh, I, I, I think, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit like, you know, when Barack was talking about all of the advanced directive stuff, 
with respect to you know permanent comas and so on, and none of us are none of us are looking or thinking about about Alzheimer's. I think this this robotic moral dilemma stuff is a little bit like that. It's bullshit, um, but uh, and actually real bullshit, not just not just one in ten thousand bullshit, but maybe one in a, one in a million or, or one in a hundred million. Um, on the other hand, you know, robotic cars, self-driving cars, th there is uh, there is certainly an issue here, uh, which is that it's one of the early. Uh, uh, it's one of the early frontiers in uh, in replacement of labor of human labor by um, by AI, because when everybody in the car is a passenger, uh, then that means that nobody is being paid to drive, and um, you know it's it's uh, there are about five million people uh, just in the U.S. Uh, or six hundred thousand in California alone who make their living uh, driving taxis, buses, vans, and trucks. Uh, that's almost three percent of the workforce. Um, and um, they, they definitely are, are going to be out of, uh, out of jobs uh, in due course. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we say, like, where are all the robots? Where are the robots? Well, here are the robots taking over. You know, it's also, it's also at, the, at the checkout in the, in the fast food uh, or at the checkout in the grocery store. Uh, and it's, in, it's actually in many places, if you begin looking. Uh, it doesn't look like robots taking jobs in, in, in the sense that you might kind of imagine, but it is happening. Um, I think that this wouldn't be bad news uh, if it weren't for hypercapitalism. Uh, so uh, I, I don't think that it's a, that it's a great uh, injury to human dignity that the Big Mac, uh, the, the guy taking the Big Mac order, is no longer a, a guy uh, or or a woman or uh, a gender nonconforming person. Uh, I think that uh, you know, there's if we if we think about about humans no longer driving cars, what's not to like about less pavement, uh, about more pedestrianized urban cores? less gas use, and when I say less pavement, by the way, I mean less pavement by a very large factor. There's a massive amount of extra paving in cities that is all about being able to park and all about our sloppy driving, which uses mass, you know, much, much more lane space than is necessary. So if you really were to have uh, fully autonomous driving inside a city, the, the amount of paved, uh, of, of paved land would be far, far less than it is today. Um, fewer, many fewer deaths and injuries, less gas use, shorter commutes, less car ownership, fewer cars, less wasted time, less car sickness, less stress and, and rage, uh, acceleration of, of car electrification, better quality of life for people with less capital who don't have the capital to, to buy and own a car because all of these things will be fleets, uh, and, and more books read. Uh, so this is all great. And, and anybody who, who, uh, you know, who, who tries to make the case for me that, uh, you know, oh, but what about the five million jobs? This sounds to me exactly like coal country uh, talk. Uh, you know, talking about, uh, about uh, you know, oh no, we can't have all of that because jobs is insane. Uh, I, so I, I have no sympathy for that argument whatsoever. Um, but, you know, in fact, many jobs are like coal jobs. Uh, and, uh, and, and the trouble uh, is, is, not, is not the AI, but it's the, the rapidly rising inequality uh, that is coming from the fact that, uh, that more and more of these jobs are, are, are just a bad idea. Uh, and that the people who are running the systems that are creating the, uh, the, the automation that makes a lot of these things uh, you know, happen and, and, and essentially uh, generates better quality of living uh, or excess wealth in some sense are concentrating all of that, all of that wealth. So the problem is, is capitalism. And we need to be reconsidering socialism in the, in, in the, um, as, as, we, as we start to look at what's happening here. I think it's completely obvious. Um, but there are other risks. Uh, that I think are deeper and that are not solved so simply as uh, getting rid of capitalism. <laughs> so, so let's talk about uh, let's talk about a few of those. 
Uh, one of them is Skynet. Uh, and I'm not talking about, uh, about, about the Terminator movies. I'm talking about the actual thing called Skynet, uh, which is a surveillance system in China. Uh, I, I think this is an actual screenshot, or it might be from a publicity photo. But, uh, but Skynet is a, is a system that's designed to uh, surveil people completely in such a way that, that, their, uh, that their faces are tracked and they're recognized at any given moment in you know, less, than, less than a few seconds, uh, no matter where they are, and that all space in the city is covered uh, from multiple angles by cameras uh, uh, connected to face recognition in such a way that, that, that no, uh, no movement uh, uh, can be registered, uh, no, uh, no, no spitting can be committed without decreasing your social score, uh, and so on and so forth. I mean, it, it really is exactly one of those, uh, one of those Black Mirror episodes. Uh, I'm not sure if they watched it first or they came up with the idea independently. Um, bias and fairness uh, in, in AI systems and machine learning, I think, is a serious problem. Because as we start to put consequential decisions uh, into, uh, into AI and we use human training data, uh, then those AI systems end up with all of the same prejudices and biases that we've got. And I, I talked about that last year, so I won't, I won't repeat that material this year, um, but you know, this slide stands in for that. This is Faceception, an Israeli company that claims to be able from nothing but a face photo to profile whether you have high IQ, are an academic researcher, a professional poker player, a terrorist, or a pedophile, or, or a bunch of other things, uh, which is obviously nonsense, and this is based on, uh, on, on, on all kinds of embedded uh, biases from, uh, from the training data that come from people. So it has nothing to do with AI, it has everything to do with, with the training data which come from humans and the way these things are deployed. And I think that's actually a very serious threat that we start to kind of uh, whitewash or AI wash uh, all kinds of, uh, of, of latent problems in human society, but then pretend that they're not, that other than pretend they're not human and then let those, uh, let those generate all sorts of feedback cycles in society. So uh, we've talked about existential threats, about drones and autonomous weapon systems, about economic harm and job loss, inequality and concentration of power safety and robotic moral dilemmas, privacy, data ownerships, liberties, ML fairness, and bias. I think these are getting more serious toward the bottom of the list and are, are, are actually less relevant at the top of the list, which is where most of the, uh, of the press has, has concentrated. And uh, I'm, I'm actually pretty excited that, that a lot of people seem to agree. These are the results of, of, a, of a little uh, Mechanical Turk uh, poll that, uh, that I ran uh, on Amazon uh, about a year ago in which I asked uh, several thousand people, you know, are you concerned about AI and blank? And, uh, and so those, those are the error bars, and this is uh, across uh, all ages from 18 to, uh, to mid-50s. Uh, and you can see that, that, that most people's concerns are actually quite uniform over age, and that these existential and, you know, will, will AI replace us concerns actually are at the bottom of the list for most real people, which is pretty cool, because that's not what you would think if you, look at, if you just look at what's in the press. Uh, and at the very top risk that people perceive is privacy, which I also think is pretty cool. I'm glad that, I'm glad that people are, are, are aware of that and that that's where their heads are. Uh, and the narrative that young people don't care about privacy anymore or whatever is clearly contradicted by the fact that there's no, uh, <laughs> this, this is absolutely flat across all ages. Uh, the only one that actually has any significant function of age is the one about fairness and, and bias, which I just mentioned. And now that's one that younger people are more concerned about, perhaps because they're more concerned about identity uh, in general. Uh, and because they're more aware of, uh, of, the, of, of, these, uh, of these sources of, um, of, of problems. But I want to talk about one that is none of those. Uh, I want to talk about fake news. And I'm not talking about fake news in, uh, in the sense that it has been reappropriated re by, uh, by, by the right to mean 
you know, anybody who does, who, who does news or does journalism is somehow fake. Uh, that's, that's, of course, a very disturbing uh, meme that, that uh, has obvious uh, antecedents in fascist regimes of the past century. Uh, I'm talking about actual fake news. So how does, what does actual fake news have to do with AI? Well, um, to explain, I, I think it's, it's important to go back a little bit into the history of machine learning. And um, so the, the most classic problem in machine learning nowadays, this is kind of the textbook exercise that everybody does as a student when they're learning uh, you know, how, to, how to do their first coding exercise in machine learning, is recognizing digits. So uh, these are, uh, this, is, this is part of the MNIST data set, which was originally gathered by the National Institu um, Institute of Standards and Technology. I, I believe that's what the, the NIST stands for. And they did it with uh, lots of school teachers and uh, high school teachers and high school students. The teachers are the easy data set, the students are the hard data set because their handwriting is really crappy. And they had them write the digits over and over. Um, and, uh, and the job of the machine learning uh, program is to look at the pixels and say, that's a two. It's not hard. And uh, the fact that it's not hard is why this is the, why this is the sort of beginner's exercise in machine learning. This is what the, what the data look like, but the real table is a lot bigger. It's still nine uh, rows, but it would be, um, I don't know, a million or so columns. And uh, if, you, if you develop more sophisticated versions of this kind of thing, you can say, you know, here's the picture that's hugging. Uh, that's the kind of machine learning that's at work in, in uh, Google Photos, for example, that lets you search uh, your, your photos for hugging pictures. Uh, my team actually makes that. Uh, or uh, it, that, that takes a, a sound wave um, and, and says, this is the text. This is what somebody was saying in this sound wave. These are all classic forms of machine learning. Uh, they're for classification, for recognition, for sensory processing. Uh, or, or even uh, there, there are machine learning techniques that do things like, uh, like analyze a, a review on Amazon and say, what is the sentiment? You know, is this a positive or a negative review? Uh, and that's, that's also um, a form of going from media to meaning, whether the media in question is an image or a sound or a paragraph or, or what have you. Uh, so the, the way um, face recognition used to work uh, back, in, back in the old days is that there would be these things called feature detectors that would be hand-coded and that would identify the corners of the eyes and the lips and the nose and these, these fiducial points, as they're called, so standard landmarks on the face. And, um, and these would be hand-coded, and, and then you would just take the positions of those and feed them into the machine learning system. This is called feature engineering, and the reason that that was the way it was done uh, is because in the old days, machine learning itself was very, very primitive, and you had to reduce the number of dimensions of the input data dramatically before you could expect to have the machine learning work. So dimensionality reduction was something done by engineering. And then once you're going from, you know, I don't know, 12 numbers to 16 numbers, then that's a small enough problem that, that these old machine learning methods could work. Now, um, if you think about the opposite uh, task of how you go from the positions of the eyes and nose and so on to a picture of a face, uh, that's what artists used to do, you know, when, when, they would, uh, when they would draw proportions and, you know, sort of make grids and say, you know, the man has eight head lengths in the Leonardo uh, Vitruvian man or something like this, right? But then, then an artist has to come along and actually do the drawing. There, there's not some kind of uh, machine learning in the 1980s or 1990s that can go and actually do the drawing from those measurements of the eyes and nose. So, um, you know, if you, if you do have programs uh, in a classical way, take 
those measurements and try and produce a, you know, a face, you get video game kind of stuff like this. So this is a, a video game engine, more or less, generating a face from a given set of measurements. And nobody's gonna look at this and say, uh, I, I recognize the guy, and actually I do recognize the guy on the right sort of thing. But it's not, it doesn't look very photorealistic. It doesn't look very photorealistic. Right? This is not something that is going to, that is going to fool anybody. Now, um, this, this uh, parametric idea of, uh, you know, of doing a sort of hand engineering in order to reduce the dimensionality of a stimulus or, or a piece of media so that you can then um, uh, manipulate it uh, using, using machine learning to get a meaning out. Uh, this also had a, an inverse. So uh, the most classic inverse that I can think of is the voter, which was a electromechanical model of the vocal tract that, uh, that could then be manipulated electrically in order to generate speech. So that's sort of the equivalent to this uh, for, um, for speech. And the voter is, is, uh, is old. Um, so this is, uh, um, this is this thing being operated by Helen Harper in 1939 at the New York World's Fair. So this is, this is a, a kind of generative machine learning that predated digital computing. Uh, and I actually found an old video. There are no phonograph records or anything of that sort. Only electrical circuits, such as are used in telephone practice. Let's see how you put expression into a sentence. Say she saw me with no expression. She saw me. Helen Harper had to study uh, this machine for a year before she learned to play it that way. There's a whole interesting gendered narrative about why it is that it's always a, a woman at the keyboard, uh, but that's, that's, that's for a different talk. Um, but uh, but this, is, this is parametric uh, speech synthesis. Um, then there was the era of concatenative speech synthesis. Uh, another woman, Susan Bennett, uh, was the voice of Siri. And this is her uh, recording God knows how many nonsense sentences, which, uh, which were then, and, and her identity was secret at the time, so this only came out years later. But, uh, but then lots of specialists cut up the, uh, all of those utterances into zillions of little beads of sound, which, uh, which then, in order to synthesize uh, something, you know, you just sort of string the beads together, and, and there were algorithms of various kinds to string the beads together. But it's another form of dimensionality reduction, uh, just, you know, now you have lots of sampling as well as a parametric model. So it's a, it's a step more sophisticated. And um, uh, the original Google Translate was the same kind of idea. So this is uh, Franz Och and his collaborators. Uh, and they made a, a pretty big innovation in, in machine translation from one language to another by using big data, which is you know, the same thing that, that Susan Bennett was doing when she, when she uttered millions of sentences into that thing, generating big data for speech, essentially. And this kind of big data comes from uh, lots and lots of parallel translations of you know a French version of a, of a web page and an English version of something, and if you if you uh, make a giant index of fra of parallel phrases and all of those things, then you can again you know string those those things together like beads on on a string and make a translation that's better than the more parametric techniques that that preceded it, and that's how Google Translate worked up until fairly recently. Uh, that's also why there's kind of nobody home. Uh, you know, this is, in, in a way, it's a sort of physical embodiment of something like Searle's Chinese Room, which imagines that, uh, that just a, a giant library, uh, a, a giant phrase book or a giant rule book or whatever it is, uh, could somehow be operated by, by somebody with no intelligence uh, to, um, uh, to produce a result. So, that, you know, there was, an, there was a point at which uh, some people imagined that this kind of uh, giant database idea would somehow result in, in intelligent systems, but I, I think uh, it's, it's hard to take that idea seriously. We certainly don't have that kind of 
giant you know, big data or phrasebook or library inside our own heads. We, we just think. Now, the, the neural revolution really changed things because this is the point at which we began to have neural networks that were sophisticated enough that they could, they could do this sort of go, go from media to meaning by operating directly on the samples, directly on the pixels or directly on the pressure samples in a waveform. And that really changed the game because now nothing is being hand-coded anymore. There's no, there's no manual code that's identifying the corners of the lips or eyes or what have you. It's just going straight from pixel to, to a face or just going straight from sound to, uh, to speech. And so uh, what, what, um, what various people began to realize was that now that we were going from one end all the way to the other without anything by hand in the middle, this ought to be invertible. And this is where um, uh, Deep Dream came from, which I spoke about a couple of years ago. And this is, where, this is why we began the Artists and Machine Intelligence program, to start to understand what, what uh, generative possibilities there were in neural nets. Uh, you know, how, could you, how could you go from meaning to media instead of going from media to meaning, which uh, was only possible in this very cartoony way with voters uh, or with, uh, um, uh, or with uh, these parametric video game faces before. So uh, you know, these early experiments, I'm not sure if it's more, I hope it's more visible from the audience than from here where we have a little bit of glare. Yeah, we'll do our best. Yeah, this is a very, this is Trippy Squirrel, which leaked and, uh, uh, and was, a, was a sort of uh, um, a perturbation on an original image that, that, uh, that put all kinds of crazy psychedelia in it. But uh, those kinds of techniques uh, allow, allow one to take the idea of a banana and synthesize an image of a, of a banana out of it. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it was, these were interesting sort of first experiments in how you could invert these neural networks in order to generate uh, pixels for meaning. And you can see the banana-ness in those pixels or the anemone-fish-ness or the hartebeest-ness or ant-ness or starfish-ness, but you're also not going to be convinced by, by looking at those that you're looking at a real photo or anything. Uh, they're really uh, psychedelic, and the reasons that they're really psychedelic are, are somewhat complex, but um, uh, the shortest way of explaining is that the whole point of those neural networks was to uh, be invariant to position and orientation and lighting. That's a lot of the, the challenge that, that neural networks have to solve when they do perception. So when you run them in reverse, they don't know which way to position things or where to put them or how to light them, so they do it all at once. It's kind of like cubism. Uh, we, we tried to, uh, to start to resolve some of those kinds of ambiguities by making experiments in whether, for example, FaceNet could be guided as it synthesizes by a guide face, which is what, uh, what's happening over there. That's Alex Morvensev. Uh, uh, guiding uh, this neural network, which is synthesizing a neural representation of my face. And uh, so, you know, it's a little less cubist. It's still pretty disturbing. It definitely doesn't look realistic. Uh, but it was, it was a step. <laughs> uh, this was back, this is ancient history. This is back uh, three years ago, I think. Now, around, uh, around the same time, or maybe even a couple of years before, um, uh, people had, so this is Alex Graves, uh, had begun experimenting with recurrent neural nets to do things like um, uh, handwriting synthesis. So this is a neural net that's trained on people's writing and that you can then make, generate uh, writing. And you can make it generate writing in any style. Uh, or you can even say, you know, write something in one style and have the neural net render the same thing but in a different style. So uh, there goes uh, signatures. As a, as a way to do a biometric. Signatures were always a pretty crappy way to do a biometric, to be clear. But now, now it's really crappy because a, a neural net can synthesize that in, in, a, in a few milliseconds. Uh, so yeah, all of, uh, all of the handwriting on here is, is generated by the, by the neural net. 
you can type and have it generate. There's an, I think there's a, there's a demo online. Uh, about a year later, um, this came out. Uh, this was a pretty interesting paper that, uh, that is able to take any photo and redirect where the eyes are looking uh, in any direction. So, um, so it's, uh, I, this, this kind of made me sit up and pay attention because even though it's not synthesizing this thing from whole cloth, and it's, it's really just a perturbation on the original image, kind of like Deep Dream was, it's a very convincing one. And in fact, the way this system was trained was with human judges uh, saying, you know, does this redirected eye look real or fake? And, uh, and, and so essentially, you know, using humans as critics, uh, the system is able to learn to make uh, perturbed eye pictures that can't be distinguished from the real thing. Well, that's interesting. Uh, you, could, you could definitely do some damage by redirecting the eyes. I, I should have I put the, um, uh, that, that, that famous uh, side-eye picture of the, of, of the, the actress from the, from the 40s. Yes. Looking at Marilyn Monroe's breasts. Right, exactly. So yeah, this, this kind of thing could have done. <laughs> exactly. Um, in 2016, um, uh, uh, Ulanov published uh, this, this paper on, on, on deep network in-painting, which is pretty interesting. Uh, so this, this allows you to uh, you know, take, a, uh, take, a take white out to a picture and white out a bunch of stuff, and the neural network can in-paint or can guess at what went into that, into the whited out space. And this is extremely compelling. Like, you know, it, it, put, it put all the books back. It made up some colors for those books that looked plausible based on, you know, what the other books were. Uh, you know, it, it, um, uh, it, it, put some, it put some of the railing back into the spiral staircase. So this is very, very interesting. And, and, and really, it relies on a neural net that has learned everything about the statistics of images in general, and that can then do a really good job of airbrushing in uh, stuff, that, stuff that has been erased. Um, so now maybe you're starting, to, you're starting to get the picture of why, why, this, uh, why this is uh, potentially alarming. Because this looks a whole lot like the sort of stuff that uh, Lenin did when, uh, when he had his airbrush artists, airbrush Lev Kamenev and Leon Trotsky, out of, uh, of, this, of this photo that, uh, of him giving, giving this, uh, this public address. I'll go back and forth a couple of times. Although I know it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to see in the, it's actually really hard to see in the thing. But you can see, can you see Levin Leon? No Levin Leon. Levin Leon. No, Levin Leon, right? <laughs> so, um, uh, so this is something that, that, that Lenin did. It's something that Stalin uh, uh, took up with, with, uh, with, with, with gusto. Uh, here, here's Stalin with uh, Nikolai Antipov, the People's Commissar for Posts and Telegraphs, uh, and Sergei Kirov and Nikolai Shvernik. And as people progressively fell out of, uh, of fashion, um, the uh, new versions of the, of, the, of the photo were made. Uh, first, bye-bye Nikolai, then... <laughs> uh, and then finally, bye-bye Sergei, until only, uh, in the end, only Stalin is left in this, in this picture. Uh, that was a pretty crude one. It was done mostly by cropping. Some of them are, are quite a bit more sophisticated, like this one with Nikolai Yezov, um, and that's the, the airbrush job uh, uh, of, of a few years later. Um, so, you know, there were, this was artisanal back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, uh, but that sort of labor, too, has been, uh, has been uh, de-skilled and, and, and taken away. Uh, I, I guess this, they were already living in socialism, so it, maybe it didn't matter that much for them. Um, this is uh, Valentin Bondarenko, who was a cosmonaut uh, in, in, the, in the Russian program, who, was, who, who died during a training exercise. And there was a lot of vested interest in, uh, in not making the, uh, the cosmonaut program look like a potentially a failure or, or, or unsafe. So uh, bye-bye Bondarenko. 
Um, so, so yeah, uh, autom automated airbrushing is pretty interesting for, as, a, as, a, as a tool for doing disinformation. But what about realism from whole cloth? Uh, and what I mean by that is not just uh, uh, perturbing an existing piece of media, uh, not just airbrushing something out, not just redirecting the eyes, but, uh, but cooking something up from scratch. So uh, I'll show you how that works for audio, and this is actually a, a, a generalization of the same technique that, um, uh, that, uh, that I just showed you for handwriting. So uh, the same researcher, Alex Graves, um, you know, he was working on, on, a, on a kind of trajectory, right? It's a two-dimensional trajectory of, of, the, of, the, of the pen. If you think instead about the waveform as a trajectory, then you can, you can apply the same kinds of techniques. And, um, and that's, that's how uh, DeepMind built WaveNet. So WaveNet synthesizes uh, speech sample by sample. Uh, so, uh, you know, in pressure, pressure sample by pressure sample from whole cloth. And it's, it's wonderfully powerful. Um, so just to give you a little bit of a sense, uh, the, this is how parametric speech sounds. This is the modern version of the voter. The Blue Lagoon is a 1980 American romance and adventure film directed by Randall Kleiser. So, so. Here's the, uh, um, now I'm going to show you the concatenative version. This is done, uh, done in the style of taking lots of beads and stringing them. The Blue Lagoon is a 1980 American romance and adventure film directed by Randall Kleiser. This is what comes out of your GPS machine, by the way. And here's the WaveNet version of uh, the same, synthesizing the same voice, so it's matched to the same voice. The Blue Lagoon is a 1980 American romance and adventure film directed by Randall Kleiser. Still not perfect, but it's a lot better than the other two. And this is a single uh, neural net, uh, no, uh, no samples needed, uh, just a few to figure out what, you know, what kind of sound to make. Um, of course, lots and lots to train it from the beginning, but then it can generate any sort of voice whatsoever. And, and the, the neural architecture is general enough that, um, uh, you know, that if you, well, if you, can, you can make it babble, you can just give it uh, you know, noise as input, and it'll do stuff like this. So they just take pictures and go. Sorry, it's exciting. <laughs> and you can hear, you know, aspirations and you know other subtle sounds in there if you listen closely that you'll never get from a, a from a, a you know from a concatenative or parametric approach. Um, you can also take the same thing and train it with piano music and get this. So uh, same, same neural net, just uh, different, uh, different stuff that it's learning from. So now this starts to look convincing, or sound convincing. What about, uh, what about images and video from whole cloth? So um, about three years ago as well, uh, we began to see generative adversarial networks. Uh, and uh, this technique is really interesting because it involves um, pitting an artist against a critic. And both the artist and the critic are neural nets now. So unlike with the case where the eyes are redirected, you now replace the human critic with a, with, with a machine critic, and you let the two of them ramp up together. So as the critic gets better, and the critic's job, to be clear, is distinguishing real from fake. So it has a one-bit output. Does this look real or fake? And the artist's job is to fool the critic. So, uh, so it's, it's sort of a self-play kind of thing. It's, it's not unlike the way AlphaGo Zero uh, trains itself to play Go by playing against itself. Uh, but now you have, you know, every time the critic gets better, the artist gets better, and, and vice versa. And uh, the original experiments were not great. You know, so these were these 32 by 32 or 64 by 64 pictures that were supposed to be uh, naturalistic. And there were some early tests of, like, can a human tell whether this is, you know, fake or real? 
and eh, you know, it's so-so. But, uh, but then in uh, November, October, November of last year of 2017, um, NVIDIA uh, threw a lot of computing power at this and, um, and used a multi-resolution technique to make these, these things. This is, uh, this is their generative adversarial network trained on celebrity faces. And for any of you who haven't seen this, it really is, it really is quite uh, remarkable. Um, I, I, I wish, we, I wish we, uh, we didn't have the, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the skylight. We can't turn that one off, not yet. But I, I, hope, I hope that you can see well enough uh, to, uh, to get the idea. This is, um, uh, these are 100% these are, uh, synthetic, uh, even more so than, the, than all of the actors uh, that it was trained on. And, um, and, and if, you, if you do a, so, so there's not a single face here that is a, you know, a, an actual actor's face. Uh, but if you were to freeze frame anywhere here and ask a human, you know, is this, is this real or fake, the human would, uh, would be close to chance. So uh, these, this synthesis of, of, of faces is now, you know, has now reached, it's, it's reached that point, which you could almost think about as sort of like a Turing test, uh, you know, not for intelligence in this case, but for verisimilitude. And um, again, it's a very, very general technique. Uh, you know, the, these, these researchers took the same thing and applied it to uh, cathedrals, to chairs, to cars, to bridges, and you get these wonderful sort of um, uh, smooth sequences of bridgeness or catness or whatever. Uh, and and the, the cat one generally comes with memes, so it'll, it'll hallucinate memes as well. Uh, although, <laughs> you don't, it's not, it's not a big enough corpus for it to actually learn how to, how to write. So it, it, it sort of babbles in, in memes uh, at the bottom, but with, but with, the, right, with the right font. Um, so um, so that's, this, is, this is kind of a watershed, a watershed moment where we have general uh, neural nets now, general AI that can synthesize convincing media from meaning rather than just going from, from uh, you know, and, and it's a little bit behind, the, you know, because, because going from media to meaning has such a long history and, was, and that kind of machine learning has been happening for decades, uh, you know, it took, it took researchers a little while to wake up to the fact that this could be turned on its head. And, and so that field is just a few years lagging, but it's catching up quite quickly. And this whole area of machine learning is absolutely exploding right now. So um, this is not a, a, a new image. This, the sharktopus was, was photoshopped, uh, I think, in the 90s. And, uh, and I put it in uh, to remind uh, ourselves to, to ask the question, is, is this new? Because we've been able to use Photoshop for a long time to make to make images that are that are fake, um, but I think it is new. I think it is new because uh, well, I, the, the case the case can be made you know pretty easily. <laughs> it's exactly in the wrong spot. Um, what you would see in those images on the bottom over here is on the left um, Princess Leia in Rogue One, and on the right the actress who played uh, pr uh, Princess Leia with lots of, ah, there we go, good idea. Um, so, uh, so yeah, this was, this was a bit of Hollywood magic done in 2016. Uh, the director, Gareth Edwards, was hesitant about doing this, you know, kind of bringing back to life of Princess Leia. It's a really difficult task and we haven't got a plan B. Thankfully, and after many, many takes, they got this scene right, but for this one scene, a whole lot of work went into it. All right, so this was really hard back in, in ancient history, 2016, and it took the resources of a Hollywood studio to bring uh, Princess Leia back to life for a few seconds on the big screen. Now, uh, that, can be, that can be done by an app that you can run on your phone uh, called Fake App. Um, 
and, um, uh, and it uses deep learning. The, the big difference is that those previous techniques, uh, you know, they involved uh, feature points on the face, much like the fiducial points on the corners of the eyes and mouth and all of that, and they involved a bunch of engineers, essentially, uh, working for many, many hours to finesse it and futz with it. And, um, and fake app just uses a deep net and does the whole thing from end to end and does it, uh, and, and does it in no time. Now, this, uh, this video of, uh, of Obama being, and I'm not gonna play the video now, but this is Obama's being sort of, uh, face being sort of puppeteered by, uh, by a grad student, I think. Uh, this was, you know, this, this, this kind of made a big splash in, in 2017 uh, when it came out. But actually, this isn't the thing that, this isn't the thing that particularly alarms me because uh, Supasorn uh, Swajnakorn, who did, who did this work, did a lot of feature engineering and a lot of futzing around in order to pull this thing off. What alarms me is that this same thing is now possible to do with deep nets without any of that futzing around. And, uh, and that, that was what inspired uh, the, 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 uh, the wonderful motherboard headline, uh, we are truly fucked. Everyone is making AI generated fake porn now, which is, uh, which is actually what, the, um, uh, what, that, what that app was designed to do. So uh, this is uh, face swap porn which is now a thing. Um, Benjamin Walker's Theory of Everything, wonderful podcast, sort of deconstructed uh, this, uh, this, this trend and, and, and sort of imagined what would happen uh, in, 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 in fake nudes, false alarm part two. Um, and uh, you know, he even put together a, a how to make a deep fake uh, sort of a, um, <laughs> a, a primer or explainer. One, uh, buy porn data set with shitcoin to uh, build a database of 500 plus images of feminazi target. He was imagining uh, that, that, uh, that you could make a Twitter bot that, uh, you know, that, would, that would immediately uh, you know, take somebody down uh, if, if, they, if they tweeted something feminist. Uh, and then um, three, run the deepfakes algorithm. Um, thanks, Cuckerberg. Uh, four, attach the magic hashtag. Uh, and, uh, and map her social networks so you can, five, send the finished deepfake to everyone they ever met. So um, Benjamin, uh, you know, hopefully wasn't, uh, um, uh, wasn't, wasn't sort of uh, um, guilty of malpractice here by, by, by actually generating a, a, a feasible and, and very dangerous idea uh, in the name of, of critique. But in fact, it is a feasible idea. This could totally be done. Some synergistic conditions. Um, John Ronson wrote a book uh, a, a little while ago called So You've Been Publicly Shamed, describing what has happened uh, in social media uh, and on the internet that allows a person to be taken down uh, by, uh, by, um, by tweet, essentially. Right? What, what it's like for somebody to maybe make an ill-advised tweet when they're taking off on a plane, and then by the time they land on the other side, have been fired from their job and shamed and stigmatized and have their entire uh, career destroyed. So there's that. Uh, that's uh, that's maybe the dark side of of the um, of the Me Too movement, uh, or of the things that the Me Too movement you know sort of instrumentalizes in order to make social progress. So both of these things are happening at the same time. Um, there's Alex Jones, and uh, and and the things the things that are implied by the existence of of, of Alex Jones and and of and of the, the propagation of these sorts of ideas um, through uh, again through through social media through virality. Uh, and there's the emergence of compromat uh, as you know something that was uh, that was just a uh, uh, a technical term uh, a couple of years ago, but now everybody knows what it means. Uh, so you know where where uh, Trump was saying 
you know, if, if a video comes out of me getting peed on, it was fake, um, nobody would have believed him two years ago. Now that would be entirely plausible that it would be entirely faked, uh, which means that uh, we don't have any such thing anymore as evidence. Marcy Shore in uh, 2017 wrote a very good, a very good piece, uh, I thought, uh, in Eurozine um, called A Prehistory of Post-Truth East and West, in which she traces some of the problems here back to postmodernism. Uh, she said postmodernism was conceived largely by the left as a safeguard against totalizing ideologies, yet today it has been appropriated on behalf of an encroaching neo-totalitarianism of the right. Is French literary theory to blame? So these are a few of the enabling or, um, uh, uh, or synergistic conditions that I can see. Now, if we go back to, uh, uh, if we go back to Skynet, uh, in China, we see the dangers of AI as a, as a method for total surveillance. That's kind of using the analytic side of, of machine learning. But if you now add to that the synthetic side of machine learning, that is the ability to synthesize media and not only analyze the media that's coming from all of those cameras, then you can also achieve total social control. Uh, right, so you're not, you, you have the whole cybernetic loop. Not only are you able to observe everything that everybody is, is, uh, is doing, but you also are able to create the media that they all consume individually and on a bespoke basis. And the whole point, of course, is social stability. So, you know, if you've got the input and the output, you can do a hell of a lot. And then there's the Russian model, of course, of disinformation and social hacking. So these provide two different sort of uh, dark arts ways of, of thinking about how these things, these, these threads can converge. So what I'm trying to say is that I don't think that it's just uh, uh, more um, photoshopping. Uh, this is a lot more, and when something is a lot more, that also makes it different. I am sort of starting to think that convincing media synthesis technology together with centralized surveillance and control over the internet stands to strengthen and empower authoritarian regimes while being simultaneously corrosive to the underpinnings, to the foundations of freer and more democratic societies that have ideas like open internets and voting and non-state-run media. So uh, that's, that's, my, uh, that's my concern. And I guess I'll end it there. <laughs> Any, any questions, or did that kill, kill the possibility of questioning? <laughs> okay, there are a few questions, good. <laughs> Thanks, that was a lot. Um, so uh, I, uh, I think it's kind of in the same vein of everything you were talking about, but I listened to this podcast a long time ago, I don't remember the name or anything like that, but it was this technology that they're doing that, um, like for celebrities in particular, if they record enough of what they're saying, they can like fill in anything, Yes. right? So they can make like full sentences in your actual voice and they can do that with our faces. And like, what do you think is gonna like, like keep our, you know, like our, ourselves, like, yeah, like our privacy and what's gonna keep our like anonymity about our security and like, who's to say that I, you know, if somebody gets a phone call with my voice, that like, you know, how, how, do, we, how do we protect ourselves? Or like, yeah, that's, a really, good, that's that? a really good question, and that's the problem. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the podcast that you might have heard was Radiolab talking about yeah. Voco. Yeah, yeah. And Voco is an Adobe technology. I don't know if it's actually been released yet, but it's based on classical techniques. And it still required enough, um, it, was, it was still kind of concatenative, basically, as far as I understand. So it still requires a pretty large sample 
um, you know, which is why you need a, you know, a celebrity or a Susan Bennett right, to, to, to do that with. But the thing about stuff like WaveNet that's neural is that it only requires a very small amount of, uh, you know, just, just enough to get the sense, right, of what a person sounds like, and then, boom, you know, you have a, a generator. So, uh, yeah, that's exactly why I think that there are, um, there are some, uh, some dark synergies between the surveillance and the synthesis side of things. And I, I, I you know, it's, I, it, I mean, privacy is a whole other layer to this problem that I think is a little bit separate as well, how we preserve our privacy, but... I don't, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but I think that, I think that we, need, um, we need to be thinking a lot harder about what, um, what the regulations or the norms or the rules are, how it is that those could possibly be enforceable, uh, how that works uh, in, in, uh, in, a, in a free society. What does it mean to be, to be a free society when these technologies exist? I don't know, but this is exactly what I'm, the questions that I'm trying to raise. I'm not sure how uh, familiar you are with the software that's been used to, uh, or the AI software that's been used uh, to assist lawyers uh, with taking a client's um, case and basically creating and printing out documents that would help and assist them in their case. But uh, I'm curious on what your view is on basically taking this a step further and using AI to um, make ethical and moral decisions for us. Right. Uh, yeah. So. Um I don't know much about about AI being used in. I mean, I know that it's being used in legal, you know, for legal software. I don't know the state of it. So it's, it's it's really interesting, and I would I'd love to I'd love to learn more about it. Actually, um, I do know that um, you know this is one of the things that I found most alarming about um, uh, about the um, the Faceception startup that I that I think I showed you know 50, 50 odd slides back. Uh, right. So this is uh, you know the, the fact that that this company is claiming not only to be able to make a judgment about, uh, about a person, uh, you know, about their criminality or whatever based on just the face image, right, which is, I mean, that's a step more ludicrous because that's not even analyzing a legal case or whatever. That's literally physiognomy, like literally look at your face and decide whether you're a suspicious type, right? But also that they claim on their website that, that Homeland Security Departments are their biggest customers right now. So, yeah. <laughs> Worrisome. So I'm curious what you think about uh, the way that uh, our social immune systems, such as they are, have responded to fake news and propaganda uh, in this cycle. And, um, you know, in the way, so there's been a lot of content produced, uh, inauthentic content produced and removed by uh, social media companies and platform companies. And um, what that does by removing it it removes our society's ability to train on what the adversaries have been doing. Right, right? so we have a kind of antibacterial soap problem. Exactly. Our immune system has been, like, rather than training our immune system to recognize it, like, I think, so New York Times had a really good article a little while ago where they um, had, can you tell the difference between the Russian propaganda stuff and the other just memes that were out there? And, you know, it's hard. This one tells, fine, but just as a user, it's hard. And I'm curious about what you think about, like, so maybe not removing this content, but rather highlighting it with like a banner that might say like, we, Facebook, have identified this as Russian propaganda content. Just a heads up, we're freezing it here. But then researchers, people, everybody can maybe learn from it. And maybe we can train AIs to recognize that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and have a little well, detection there, arms there are so uh, There are so many hairy problems in, in, in what you're raising. Uh, so to name just a few of them, 
so first of all, the fighting fire with fire idea that you raise at the end, like can we make a discriminator that can tell real from fake, notice that that's exactly the way a generative adversarial network works. Right. So the right. moment that you have an oracle that can tell the difference, you immediately generate the artist to counterbalance it. It works sure. just like nature, right. because I think it is nature. Right. That's what ecosystems are. So that, that doesn't, that's not a silver bullet. Uh, and in fact, the more you, the more you lean on that, the, f the more virulent the whole thing becomes. Sure. <laughs> so that's a problem. Um, secondly, uh, I, you know, Zeynep Tufekci, the journalist, has written a lot about mm -hmm. whether, uh, about what is being optimized, both by the social media companies in news feeds and the psychology of, of what people look at and, and, uh, and what they, you know, what they like or share. And the problem is that both the social media companies and the people are flawed in this, in this equation. Uh, the media companies are, are flawed because they often are trying to optimize for engagement, which is either love or hate. And so that results in this kind of polarization and also effects that, that create um, a sense of, of, uh, of, of in-groupness, uh, right, and huffing your own fumes with people who believe the same things. And not only not, having, not being exposed to the other stuff, but actually believing that the other stuff is fake or is wrong or not trustworthy. And as that, as that happens, it's a, it's a dynamical system that creates feedback loops that further polarize. So, um, you know, whether leaving the stuff in helps this seems dubious, given those dynamics, um, especially given that, you know, the, t the task that people are doing seems not to be distinguish real from fake, but rather distinguish friend from foe. But these are deep, you know, these are deep waters. So I, I don't feel like I have any answer. I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to knock down all of yours, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, hi. Um, so it seems like with AI technology, it's a new source of power. And with any type of new source of power, you have bad actors and you have good actors. And um, I, I recently... Uh, did a study abroad program where I traveled around Asia, and when we were in China, uh, we got paired with um, uh, buddies at a, a, a university, um, and we got to get to know them, and um, you know, hung out with them, talked about a lot of this stuff. And one of the scariest things to me while I was there was the fact that none of them seemed to really care. None of them cared. Um, like we talk a lot about the CCP in China, in the U.S., but there was no discussion whatsoever about any of these things that we were learning about in class. And there's a bunch of social reasons for that, yada yada. But I guess my my question is, what? How do we construct social checks on bad actors? Because that seems to be one of the few ways in which we can actually work on preventing this kind of dystopian yeah. society that you have. There's a lot in your question as well. So to take the first part of it first, um, the, I mean, I, I, underneath maybe you know, a lot of my talk is a set of values that I think is shared by most of the people here in the room, but that's far from universal. And, uh, and I don't think that we can even claim that all of those values are somehow you know, like good and that the other values are bad. And uh, you know, one of the things that has come up a lot when, um, when I speak with, uh, say, you know, people in positions of power in China who are coming to, uh, you know, to discuss uh, you know, ethical norms or whether they're things that we can kind of agree on, you know, they, they tend to say things like, privacy has a very different valence for us culturally. You, know, you think about it in these ways, but for us, this is not, this is not a thing. 
um, you know, they, they, there are other things they value. There, there are Confucian values, there's stuff about family and about loyalty and about duty, um, and, and most of all, stability. And those, those values of stability, you know, you see some of those debates in, you know, among the American founders, you know, Hamilton, you know, fearing mob rule and valuing stability and centralization and, you know, and, and some of, the, some of the, the sort of southern contingent being much more about individual rights and there's some kind of balancing act. Oh, China is also very far from homogenous. So, you know, village life uh, doesn't have a whole lot of privacy. Uh, and, uh, you know, so even the idea of a private space or, 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 or private life is, is, is um, I think, quite foreign to a lot of, to a lot of people who are still, uh, who are still you know, in the villages. Uh, things start to change when they move to the cities, start to grow up and start to acquire, and many of them are now hell-bent on acquiring all of the sorts of things that they see. Uh, you know, in, in Western media, and, and acquire acquire the um, uh, you know the, the sort of middle class existence that I think almost by definition brings with it all forms of personal space. And then you have people like Ai Weiwei or whatever who are you know lashing out against you know the sort of perceived oppression. Uh, and then I don't even know whether you know the the uh, whether whether we do or don't have on the part of some of the people in power the kind of hypocrisy of you know I I deserve privacy but nobody else does. Like and even that is on you know right. So it's not homogeneous and it's really complex. And, and I, don't, I don't know uh, what, you know, uh, talking about an, an evil or good in that gets really hard, really fast. Uh, some things feel really messed up to me when I look at them. Uh, but, you know, I also don't have the sense of confidence that if we, you know, fast forward by 100 years, that, you know, regular people will have the same values. I don't know. Um, and that also makes, makes trying to come up with what these norms are, these rules are very, very fraught, especially when we try to do it at a global scale. We're kind of stuck between, you know, having, having norms and, and being imperialist. <laughs> Hi, so um, when I was listening to your talk, my kind of first thought was like, why are people still building these programs? Um, and obviously you are still building these programs. And so um, I was, my question is two parts. One, can we use this technology responsibly without becoming a fascist society and how can we do that? Yeah. And two, are there benefits to this technology that we should give pause before giving up? Yeah, so uh, I mean this has been a fairly dark talk I have to admit, which I guess is a little bit the theme of the stuff that I talk about at Smoke Farm. Um, but, um, but it's um, I am an optimist about it, and, and I haven't talked about, about uh, the upsides. And I think the upsides are very significant. Um, I, I mean, what a lot of this is about is uh, imbuing our machinery with the sorts of capabilities that have been um, uh, only possible for, for people to do. And you know, that, that carries with it the, uh, not only the usual arguments about uh, you know, freeing us from drudgery or, or what have you, but I think it carries with it creative possibilities and expressive possibilities and productive possibilities in every possible sense of productive that are actually really hard to wrap one's mind around. I mean, I think it's like, it's like electrification. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, we, we're doing very specific sorts of things you know, now, like, uh, you know, can you have uh, personal assistants that are not really crappy like all of the ones that exist today and that are able to actually have natural interactions with a person, which we're very far from doing with the old technology, and so right? and, and you know, and then okay, how does that extend? You know, how does that actually extend your agency and your ability to move through the world? You, you get some very exciting, you know, kind of possibilities when you start to look at that. Um, 
So, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I think that in terms of human potential and capability, it's, it's, it's enormous. And unfortunately, one of the things that I'm seeing is a great turbulence in which we're running up against not problems of AI, but problems of our own natures, where it feels like our maturity or our ability to, to, to sort of, as a society, uh, handle these things you know, it's, it's like a clash between, uh, you know, on the, on the one hand, a civilization that can achieve these extraordinary things, and on the other hand, we are just these monkeys, you know, uh, with all of, these, all of these imperatives and all of these urges, uh, you know, that, that seem so out of step with the capabilities that we have now. So, so yeah, I, di I didn't, I, I should maybe have spent more time talking about some of the, some of the positives that this enabled, but yeah, if I, if I didn't still feel like that's an exciting thing to do, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing it. I, I also feel like, um, like heading off some of the negatives is another reason, uh, you know, for for me and for you know like-minded people, right, to, to be in, you know in the business as well. So I, I don't I don't feel like if there's a flight, you know, of that sort of thinking from the field, that's a good thing either. It seems one of the key takeaways for me in listening to all of this was that you have a huge problem of authenticity and uh, trust and validation for anything that's digital. So this can play out two ways, if you extrapolate. One, you stop believing it, so it's all propaganda. Right. And I think we should go back to using the word propaganda instead of fake news, because... Uh, I agree. Uh, and then, so we can say, look, the only way you have an authentic interaction is when you're face-to-face -face with real people in real world. That would be one scenario. I don't know if it's possible. That's sort, of going, going, that's sort of going Amish. That would, that, would, that would also prevent you from having uh, that may be our future, uh, video right? chats with anybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and the other would be that you recreate tools that allow you to verify and authenticate. And, and the parallel I'm thinking about is when uh, we started to put everything online uh, and documents could be copied, you created techniques for digital watermarking right. to enable you to do that. So I'm wondering if there is a movement to try to work towards authenticity and verification and validation. Yes, so at a technical level, there are definitely things that one can do to try to create authenticated media using, using cryptography. Um, and you know that, that you can somehow prove that it was captured for real using an image sensor at such and such time and place, and, and that's for sure an area of work. I don't think that we can ever make something that can, you know, in isolation diagnose a piece of media as real or fake for the reasons that I talked about earlier, but I, I do think that there are cryptographic techniques that can authenticate real media. It's a pity that those weren't around in the uh, spy cam watching, uh, you know, uh, Trump in his hotel room. But, but um, uh, or maybe it's not a pity. Never mind. <laughs> we, can all, we can all live in, uh, you know, live in the belief that we, we want to believe in. But um, I, 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 so the, the Amish route, where everything happens in person, uh, you know, I think it's very easy to forget how important the technological mediation is to us, and how and how fundamental that is to how we've constructed all of our relationships. I mean, none of us would be here at Smoke Farm today if we hadn't heard about this electronically. Uh, right, or, or maybe a small handful. Right, we all, you know, emailed and saw this on Facebook and on other things, and um, uh, and the way you keep in touch with your friends, you know, now that we're in a very in a very you know sort of um, mobile and peripatetic world, like your 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 friend group, your the, the way you think about your work and your personal life are all highly mediated. So I don't think that I don't think that that sort of uh, pronouncing all of that dead and now everything is going to be done in person is. I mean, it's, I think, I think we, we, we don't fully grasp what that would mean. Um, Maybe the notion that we need to bring back is the notion of ground truth. We do need to establish a ground truth somewhere. 
Well, and part, maybe yeah. the only way you can do that reliably, reliably is in the real world. Maybe. Uh, part of what Marcy Shore uh, talks about in the piece that I mentioned is the idea that maybe you know, the antithesis to, to French postmodernism is, um, uh, is the, the Eastern European uh, sort of uh, retort to, um, uh, to, uh, to this sort of post-truth stuff, which, was, which is all about, you know, so the, you know, com- the, the idea of dissent in communist Eastern Europe was all about pravda, about truth. And maybe that's, you know, m- maybe that's a way, but on the other hand, there are reasons why the, why the, why, why the other school was revolting against that. There's, there's something that can be quite oppressive about this idea that there is a singular truth as well. Um, you know, this is why essentialism is out of, is out of favor, you know. Right, I, I mean, this, I think the same strain of thought, you know, also holds that, for example, um, uh, I don't know, that, that, um, that there are only two genders, damn it, you know, <laughs> or that, uh, I mean, we can make many examples, right? So I, I don't know, I don't think that there's an easy answer. Um, yes? Um, I was just curious if, um these programs or systems that are learning um, how to identify things that are false, say like on Facebook or whatever, um, if how they deal with things that are, I was gonna say deliberately false, but I know that those false things are also deliberately false. I'm thinking of things like satire, like something that you would find on like the the onion or click hole or something like that, that are designed to be false with the audience also knowing that they are false and how it distinguishes between those two. They are really not very good at that sort of thing. These these uh, these neural nets have very little irony at this point, <laughs> and and that and that's a big that's a big problem. I mean, that's uh, you know one of the early examples that I gave was about reviews, and uh, you know there are some systems that you can actually play with online, and, and it's very funny you know to see the kind of stuff that you can make, you know. I mean, if you say something like you know this doesn't suck so badly as well, you know, right? And it, it's you know, right? There, there are many. There, there, it, I mean, it's, and you you start to see sort of how shallow. Uh, the analysis of these things is when, when, you, when you begin to play with them that way. So the way, um, the way irony and sophisticated judgments of this kind are being dealt with today are with humans, with human judges. Uh, that's also problematic because uh, for a variety of reasons, and one of them is that the human judges uh, you know, historically have tended to be outsourced to places where labor is cheap, uh, which also happen to be places that actually don't share uh, the same uh, set of priors and contexts that would act, that would allow such a judgment to, to be made reliably. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I have one more, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, please. Um, uh, you talked a little bit about some of the benefits that you saw, um, and they sound kind of personal, like to an individual. Um, based on that last slide, I'm wondering if you see uh, or have been able to identify any sort of uh, positives, specifically towards democratic and like election systems. Um, rather than the authoritarian, just like what you were saying about being an optimist, right. um, but for specifically for those virtues. Well, I, unfortunately, I think a lot of the things that are wrong with democracy, you know, kind of like what I was talking about with capitalism, you know, they're not AI fixes, they're, they're policy fixes. Uh, so, you know, gerrymandering is wrong with democracy, uh, you know, or not having instant runoff elections is wrong with democracy in the U.S., um, so I, I don't I don't know how you know it seems like like uh, AI allows you to game things you know in various ways I'm not sure that it allows you to you know to ungame them uh, you know without without raising even more problems of like okay who is doing the un the ungaming right and, and what we're trying to do with with things like democracy is create simple and level playing fields and what intelligence does is the opposite of that and I'm not only talking about artificial intelligence right when you look at how Darwinian evolution works or how you know, matches of wits work, right? It complicates 
and it creates power imbalances, and it creates complicated inverted dynamics that are hard to understand, and it, and it, and it generates lying. Uh, you know, so there, there are birds who will, uh, you know, who've learned in an evolutionary sense when, when they nest, you know, they nest on the ground, and if there's a predator coming by, they'll start to do this display that looks like they have a broken wing and flap around on the ground, because then the predator that is nearby won't infer that the nest is nearby, but rather that this bird is injured. And that's like a really sophisticated theory of mind thing. It turns out it's not something that is going, I mean, we don't think that it's going on consciously, right, in the animals of those brains, but that's a piece of theory of mind that, is, that has evolved. Um, so that's the kind of fake news, you know, that, that nature produces. You know? And in some sense, like, I think that is, that is the automatic fruit of intelligence in certain ways. And, and when, we, when we set rules about fairness or about rights or about democracy, we're actually doing the opposite of that. We're, we're trying to, you know, create almost Cartesian systems that, you know, that that, that, that kind of stuff can flower in without overrunning. Uh, it's almost like creating a garden, right, as opposed to allowing the thicket to just run however it will. And that's, yeah. Um, hi. I was just curious a bit more about maybe the first third of the talk, um, the sort of hurtling towards this like post-work or post-labor future, um, this call for socialism, then that coming from the vantage point of one of like the largest corporations. No, no, it's from me, not from my okay, well, I don't speak for my employer, <laughs> to be clear. But I guess I'm curious about sort of, but thinking about like, so what, is the, what are the roles of this sort of AI or this sort of positive speculation about AI and sort of machine learning? How, how possible is that, to like, is that to separate from the mass influence these companies have? Like, Similar debates like in, in sort of like genetically modified crops, where there's like a sort of like technocratic, say left, who's like, well, we can't like throw the baby out with the bathwater, we need to keep GM crops, and then folks saying, well, like, we don't, we don't want three companies governing 70% of the Earth's surface. Yeah. And I wonder if there's similar, like, how you address similar debates um, in terms of like tech, te uh, technology companies. Yeah, it's, uh, it's tricky. I mean, I, I, I don't... I think that there are parallels, but also some pretty big differences between Monsanto and Google, uh, for example. Uh, you know, I, one of them has to do with the difference between information technologies and uh, material ones. I mean, you can think of Monsanto as an information technology company in the sense that it's all about the genomes, but um, but but actually, you know, the um, the kind of uh, the, the both the DRM nature of it and and the fact that that has this very uh, physical, you know, that, that literally involves the, the, the control over, over surface, the surface of the earth in the ways that you've just described, I, I think, you know, change the dynamics somewhat. Um, there also are unintended consequences, and, you know, Facebook is dealing with those unintended consequences in front of Congress right now, right? They, they didn't set out to, you know, uh, remake uh, demo you know, democracy or something, right? They just, they just wanted to make a social network, but then they're suddenly in the situation of, like, you broke it, you bought it, you know, kind of thing, right? And and um, I don't I don't know. I think we're you know we're we're all struggling with this sort of sense of uh, you know we some of these consequences were were I think quite literally unforeseeable when when these things started to get developed, and now we end up in this position where um, you know both a lot of the research and a lot of the vehicles that 
that are involved in these large-scale uh, dynamical loops that, that are society-wide are flowing through you know, this, this thing that the, that the companies have made. So they, they, have, they have now this, this rather awesome responsibility. I see them all trying to, you know, I, I mean, even, I, I'm, I'm not such a big fan of Facebook, but I see even them trying to kind of come to grips with that. Um, I, you know, it doesn't strike me as, as, as uh, primarily cynical, actually. I think that we're all just kind of like struggling to figure out what to do. Um, now, the, the, dramatic, the dramatic economic inequalities, you know, that, that also is, is in the background in, in all of this. But, you know, it's, it's, it's also, how can I put this? Like, um, it's not the case that, that a company like Google has somehow like confiscated all of the money from everybody else, and that's the mechanism for that inequality. It's, it's rather that there are, um, there are so many, uh, you know, I, I can use coal as an example, right? When, 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 uh, when certain markets are destroyed like that, many of which I think like good riddance, then, you know, you, if you don't have a redistribution mechanism, then even though the net total has obviously grown, the, um, there are losers, which, you know, there, there shouldn't be uh, in, a, in, a, in a rational, in a rational system. When the, when the net total is so much bigger, than it was, and we also see the inequality growing. Something is wrong about how the whole thing is being administered. So I don't know. I, that's I, that's not a very satisfying answer, but you know, happy to talk about it more over a glass of wine. I'm gonna shame myself first for doing that. No, it's not so much a question as a comment. <laughs> Um, but I, I was really interested that you brought up gerrymandering. It was like, oh, that's a thing that we need to, that uh, we ourselves can fix and we can't outsource mm -hmm. technology. But I, there's really great, interesting policy work being done with big data and gerrymandering to establish what's called coherent voting blocks. So, you know, geographic voting blocks where there's similar demographic interests. And I can see, I'm teaching the artist, teaching the critic to establish better and better and better, more accurate uh, voting blocks. There uh, is a lot of good stuff going on in the Netherlands using things like AI, things like big data, to run evaluations of proposed policy. And so it's possible to imagine a future where we're using these technologies not to establish more and more truths, but to find a truth that's agreeable. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, the, the problem is that whoever is uh, making that system and whoever is setting the loss function or the gain function um, is in a position of extraordinary power. I mean, remember that the way that the gerrymandering actually happened was precisely by using, I, I, won't, I won't call them AI techniques, that's a little bit too glorified, but optimization techniques, essentially, right, to draw lines that, that optimized a certain function about, you know, um, that's, that's how you get cracking and uh, uh, whatever, right? So, Whoever is in power draws the lines with their own optimization function. Then somebody else comes into power, hopefully, and redraws with their optimization function. So you now have to ask who, you know, is who is going to write the, the loss function that is going to, you know, that's going to that's going to be neutral somehow. That's going to be impartial, where that's not going to stand to gain one side. I mean, almost by definition, everything will, will, you know, will benefit one side or the other. And then you veil the policy debate behind a technocratic debate. So I, I mean, for, for I know that this is not. As, you know, as simple as I make it sound, but like I'd much prefer one person, one vote, and get rid of the whole damn thing. And that's what I mean by creating more Cartesian, you know, like avoid, avoid, gener you know, avoid creating loss functions whenever you can. And, if, and, and minimize the number of places where we, we are optimizing something, because every time you define something that you're optimizing, you're, you're doing a political act. And in that sense, it's, it's, it's undemocratic, because somebody is, is getting to write, write those meta rules. 
So I don't know, again, a second glass of wine. <laughs> you know? um, all right, um, thank, thank you all. This has been really fun. <laughs>